take your word of God, your copy of the word of God, and move to the 21st chapter of Matthew, if you will, this morning. And uh, we'll spend our time studying this relationship that is culminating with Jesus and his arch nemesis, the religious leaders that are based out of Jerusalem and in the temple where Jesus finds himself on the third day of the Passion Week. We're going to read a large portion of Scripture this morning, and um, I even read this out loud and timed it just to see how long it would take me to read this, and it'll be a little bit of a challenge to keep your concentration, but I think it's going to serve us really well uh, to have read this whole portion. We're actually going to study a very large portion this morning because I think we'll get the most uh, benefit of the uh, intent of the Spirit through Matthew's writing if we keep this whole text together. And um, it's a challenging task, and I hope that we can uh, do this effectively, and uh, we'll pray to that end after we finish our reading of, of the Word. So let's pick up reading in verse number 28. Again, Jesus is in the temple. He has uh, been challenged by the Sanhedrin, which is made up of the chief priest and the scribes. And now Jesus, speaking to them, says in verse number 28, and you can pick up the reading there with me. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They, that is, the religious leaders, said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But When the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Again, the religious leaders answer in verse 41. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable or heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, 
They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Verse number 1 of chapter 22. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. And everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at all the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. These are the words of God for our consideration this morning. Let's listen to them carefully. Let's ask for His help as we do so. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the record that Matthew has given us under the direction of Your Holy Spirit who has preserved this record for our reading and study this morning. Thank you for the majesty and the kingly authority of Jesus that is seen in these final portions of this narrative. Thank you for Jesus' movement toward Jerusalem. We know that this week of Jesus' life being recorded here will end at the cross. He will die and those that had called out Hosanna to the Son of David will scream, crucify Him in just a few short days. We're grateful for this record and we're grateful for the factual history that's recorded here. Our Lord, our Master, our King, in all of His authority, shaming His opponents, teaching truth to us who will study it even thousands of years after the fact. So we praise You and we thank You for what is before us in these few moments as we study these words together. And we acknowledge that we need help. I need help for this time as I proclaim what You have spoken. I desire to do so with power from You. Your Holy Spirit is here with us and with me and I ask that His activity would be evident and that all glory and praise would be to Your name as we glean understanding with His help. I pray for the reception of your word for for those who are reading it for the first time or who are about to hear it proclaimed. I pray that you would soften hearts, that you would work as only you can through your instrument, which is your word. I pray that your spirit would run freely in his work. May there be evidence that we have encountered you. You have spoken to us 
And we have responded rightly to your word. We ask this because we want your name to be lifted high and exalted and your son to be praised for his glorious grace. And so we ask these things in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to study verse number 28 of chapter 21 through verse 14 of chapter 22. I'm as shocked about that number of verses as you are, and I'm as scared of it as probably you are. Many of you, no doubt, are right now thinking of what is in the oven and wishing you had turned it down a notch. Uh, we're going we're gonna to make it through this, and I think you'll see in the end that we're benefited by the big portion rather than by dividing these up into smaller portions. Our goal every time we study the Bible is to get what the Spirit intended for us to have from the text. We read it at its plain reading. This is actual communication. And he has communicated through these three parables specifically what he would have for us to understand. That's our goal. That's our objective this morning. And uh, keeping them together, I trust, will aid us in that objective as we study together. The context here is quite simple. If you weren't with us last week, in verses 23 through 27, Jesus was challenged in rebellious challenge from the Sanhedrin, from the religious leaders in the temple. On what authority is he doing what he's doing? And what he's doing is teaching and healing within the temple. What he's doing is flipping over tables and driving out merchants at the most lucrative time of the year in their sales operation. What he's doing is proclaiming his kingly authority granted to him as the Messiah, the Messiah of God sent from heaven, the very Son of God. And the religious leaders are not unaware of what is happening, and so they challenge him with, on what authority do you do what you do? And he responds with challenging their competency to evaluate him. You remember then in verse number 25, he He asks them to answer him about John the Baptist. And in verse 25, we find that they discuss it among themselves and they recognize that they're trapped. If they say he came from heaven, then his message was from heaven. And John the Baptist's message was, I'm not worthy to latch the sandal of Jesus because he's the one for whom I came to foretell. He's the Messiah. I'm the prophet who speaks of him. So if they say John the Baptist is from heaven, they're trapped in the presence of the one who John the Baptist proclaimed. If they say John the Baptist is merely from man, he has no divine authority, they face the wrath of the crowds, many of whom have been baptized in John's baptism, preparing for the coming of the Messiah. And so they answer with willful ignorance, we do not know. Jesus says, if you you don't know, then I'm not going to tell you where I gain my authority. They certainly know the answer. They refuse to answer the question. That is the setting upon which Jesus now enters into these three parables, addressing the religious hypocrisy that is embodied by those religious leaders at Jerusalem. Jesus deals with a topic that is bigger than just these religious leaders, but it is embodied. They are the personification of hypocrisy. So this morning, I believe we'll find this grand theme outlined for us in these parables. King Jesus holds only wrath for those who live in religious hypocrisy and love only for those 
who repent and believe. So King Jesus, the authority figure of heaven, the one who reigns over the kingdom of heaven, holds only wrath for those who live in religious hypocrisy. And he loves only those who do not live in religious hypocrisy, who genuinely repent and believe. As we enter into a discussion of hypocrisy through these parables in our study, it drew my mind this week back to Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And uh, for many of you, that's, that's a, a, a serious piece of literature that you encountered during a number of years in, in your reading or you've come back to and read again and again. And for others of you, it's just the best movies that you've, you've ever seen on the big screen. We won't talk about the value of those two scenarios, and I won't tell you which scenario I'm in. As a literary minor in college, I'm in the second category of loving the movie. I did tell you. At the end of The Lord of the Rings, you'll remember that Frodo Baggins, if you're into this at all, if not, it'll make sense whether you know the story or not. Frodo Baggins and Sam Gamgee are trying to cross the plains of Mordor to get up to Mount Doom, right? They need to discard the ring. They're going to cross through the plains of the orcs who are the ferocious beast of evil that will slay them as soon as they recognize them as the hobbits with the ring. The big eye is looking down and searching for the ring. And it always cracks me up because right in the middle of this most serious moment, the idea that comes to Frodo and to Samwise is that they would disguise themselves and that they would cross the plains of Mordor under the guise of being orcs. And so they put on orc armor, which is hilarious because they're hobbits. You've seen a hobbit, right? They're small little creatures, little human creature things that don't exist with very hairy feet. They're very small. Orcs are very big and they have massive armor placed upon them. It reminds me of David when he's going out to see Goliath and Saul says, here, put on this armor and you can just feel David under the weight of the armor going, I don't think this is going to work out so well. So here comes Frodo and here comes Samwise and they're, they're going across the plains of Mordor and they're marching along in this ridiculous disguise. Anyone who looked at them would say, those are not orcs and they're wearing orc stuff. It's not believable to anyone. Thankfully, Orgon, Orgon is at the front of the Black Gate and he is feigning an attack, draws all the orcs away. They get to cross the plains with nobody there. They're amazed at this, and the story goes on to see the destruction of the ring, and unity is restored on Middle-earth because you cared, okay? All that to say, that illustration of the ridiculousness of their covering, of their presentation of themselves as orcs, it's not believable on the screen, it's not believable in print, and it certainly would not have been believable had genuine orcs seen them. The guise of religious hypocrisy is just as foolish in the gaze of King Jesus. He's never fooled by hypocrisy. He's never been snowed by what we do to put on a front that says... I'm engaging in worship in spirit and in truth. He's never taken 
by some facade that says, I'm a child of the kingdom, when behind it there is only death in the heart. And these parables are His creative mastery of exposing hypocrisy in the lives of those who are trudging around with kingdom citizen armor on. And it's ridiculous in His gaze. These parables, if you haven't been here for the study of parables, present us with a unique study opportunity. The parables have been a place where many people have come to say many different things. There is one main point to the parables. Every parable is a true-to-life account that has a spiritual implication built into that account. They're believable tales. Shocking, yes, but believable. Real-life accounts made up by Jesus to drive home a central theme to those who were hearing it. At times it was to keep the truth from those who were hearing Him and to provide it only for those who were given ears to hear. In this case, it is to, with creative storytelling, point out the demise of religious hypocrisy under His reign as King in the Kingdom of Heaven. So we'll divide these parables up the same way we've divided every other study of the parables in Matthew chapter 13 where we collected all those kingdom parables we will study in the same way we'll see first the the problem that provides us with the opportunity for a parable we'll see the parable itself in its details and then finally we'll end with the point and we'll we'll examine what Jesus is intending to teach with the picture of the parable let me warn you as I've been warned by those ahead of me in the faith who have instructed me in the Scriptures, let's not be challenged to get lost in the details of the story. It is easy for us to get entangled in the details and to ask, well, what does this part mean? And what does that part mean? And what connects to this part? Jesus is using a cultural analysis, a cultural story that would have made sense in the moment to drive home a point. It's our job to make sure that we get that cultural gap together so that we can understand what he's doing with the story and we can receive the point as these in the temple received it at its very first telling so let's see first then the problem the problem rests in the recipients of the parables the problem is not in jesus he doesn't have to explain something it rests entirely in the hypocrites who are challenging him they are hypocrites because they are the religious leaders of israel say well that's obvious Well, the hypocrisy is less obvious to us. They actually go about as the worshipers of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the creator of the universe, the one true God. And they are the ones who, in theory, are preparing the nation of Israel for the coming suffering servant, the Messiah of Israel, who will provide salvation. These are the individuals who now are standing before the Messiah himself and are challenging his authority. So they are the problem. Their hypocrisy brings these parables to the teaching ministry of Jesus. No doubt there are many gathered around as Jesus has just humiliated these hypocrites who masquerade as leaders within his kingdom who are in fact dead enemies of his kingdom. And as the crowd gathers, Jesus has all of the incentive needed to launch into these parables. 
Now, there are three of them. We read them together. And understand that each one of these parables drives back to our one primary central truth. Jesus holds wrath, anger, judgment for those who live in religious hypocrisy. He did then. He did within the nation of Israel. In the grand scheme. And He does today. He does so here. And He loves only those who are genuine in repentance and belief. Revelation always brings accountability. And Jesus reminds these individuals of that accountability through these parables. So let's, from the problem, let's launch into the point, let's, or the pictures rather, of the parables. Let's see these parables. We're going to march through these. And I trust you're familiar with them enough. And if not, I trust we'll be clear enough for you to understand and grasp the details of these parables beginning in verse number 28. So let's, let's build upon the problem of the hypocrisy that is staring him in the face and let's hear the stories that Jesus uses to expose his rejection of the, the farce of their religious commitment to Yahweh God. Notice in verse number 28, we find the first of these three parables. In your Bible, it may have it called the parable of the two sons. Jesus asked them to consider this parable. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And the father went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I will go, sir. But he didn't. He did not go. Now, which of the two did the will of his father? This is the parable. The first of the three is the parable of these two sons. The players are, are very simple. You have a father who owns a vineyard and you have two boys. Probably the first and the second should be taken as age categories, not just sequence or time. He goes to the oldest and he says, I want you to go do this task. He's rejected. Therefore, he goes to the second son and he says, I want you to go do this task. And at that point, the second son agrees to the task. Now, there is a textual variance here. There are some of our manuscripts of our New Testament. This is merely a translation that we have before us. So there are some of our manuscripts that would flip these responses around. Maybe you have a New American Standard in front of you this morning. You have a different set of responses. You have the opposite set. So the first one says, I will, and doesn't. The second one says, I won't, and he does. That variance does not affect the parable at all. And I believe we have the best of the manuscript evidence here in our English Standard Version as we, as we examine it. NIV, I believe, has the same. King James also has the same. But notice the clarity of the story. And this is so meaningful to me from an experiential standpoint. I had, I had very few chores, but I, the chores that I did have as a kid, they were, they were locked in on me. I, I didn't share my chores with my sister. There was no rotation. Um, I had certain jobs and she had certain jobs. And particularly in the summer, I remember my dad telling me, uh, I want the grass mowed before I get home from work. So that's roughly 5.30, 6 o'clock when he's going to come home from the office. And so I need to have it done by that point. I would quickly agree to the task. All right, dad, I'll get it done. I'd be foolish at the beginning of the day to tell him no. Uh, that would start my day on a path that would, that would not alter my course of mowing the grass. It would just change the, the relationship level while I was mowing the grass. So I would say, sure, I'll get that done. The morning would begin. We'd get to lunch. 
Mom might remind me one time, hey, you need to mow the grass. Remember what dad said, it needs to be done before he gets home. Maybe get a phone call or have a friend stop by and say, hey, the guys are going to play ball at the park at three. So from one to three, I'm thinking about playing ball at the park at three. Maybe I'm in the backyard shooting some hoops, getting prepared. Three o'clock, I think I'll go play for an hour. I'll come home at four. And, and from four to five or 530, I'll be able to get the yard done. Get to the park at three. Get on an awesome winning streak. Hold the court. You can't walk away from that. Dad will surely understand he played on this exact same park. He'll understand this. He'll, he'll reason with me. Unfortunately, Dad comes home early. He's there at 5 on the dot. I roll up on my bike at 5.15. We have long grass, and we have very in trouble son. So I get this story, right? Two sons, one dad. He goes to the one. He says, I want you to do it. He says, no. He refuses initially to acknowledge and to obey the command. But later, with time, he considers it and he says, I will do it. And he goes and he's faithful to the task. The second one, like me, says, sure, I'll do it. But ultimately, there is nothing behind that profession. This is the first of three parables that Jesus uses to make it clear that he holds only wrath for those who live in religious hypocrisy. We'll come back to the conclusion in just a moment. The second of the parables is called the parables of the tenants, beginning in verse number 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. This story is also very relatable to our circumstance. This man clearly planned for production of wine at his vineyard. He did everything necessary to make sure that a successful operation could be held at this property. But he was not going to do the operation. In fact, he was going to let others come in. And on a lease situation, which many of you no doubt understand better than I do, farm his land and use his press and store in his tower, and sell for their own profit. So they paid him rent. The opportunity was theirs then to make money off of his piece of property. The only thing he asked was that he be given a portion of the fruit. As a part of his right as owner, he wanted to get a a part of the fruit that would be his. Mark 12, 2 helps us understand that even better than Matthew does here. So in verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And you can almost feel the temple response. What? Wait, they beat one of them? And they killed one? And then they publicly killed another one with stoning? This doesn't make any sense. Why would they do this? Jesus goes on with the story. Again, he sent other servants. The master repeats this. The landowner repeats his sending of his slaves more than the first time. This time he sends more. He thinks, surely with more numbers, this whatever was going on in this radical response to my servants, it won't take place again, but it does. And in verse 36, it happened again. And the parable of the tenants goes on to say, finally in verse 37, He sent his son. And at this point, the delegated authority of the son would be in the presence of the leasing tenants. And they would be bound to respect the landowner who had granted them their lease. 
and they would give him his fruit. Verse 37 says, they will respect my son. But when those leasing tenants saw the son, they had anything but respect. Rather, they saw an opportunity. If we kill the heir, surely the landowner will give up and will get his inheritance. His inheritance is right here. It's this land. It's this fruit. It's this press. It's this tower. And it's the, the, the money that comes in from this piece of land. And we will get it for ourselves. And so Matthew records Jesus telling this to these religious hypocrites in the temple. And they are infuriated at this story. They take the son, verse 39, they throw him out of the vineyard after killing him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And notice verse 41. These Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they get it. They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them the fruits in their season. There's only one logical response to this. These men need to be punished. And they need to be punished severely to the point of death. And then he needs to get a new lease. I mean, they're, they're businessmen too. So they're thinking two things are going to happen. Those guys aren't going to make it. And there's going to be new people who are going to lease this land. Jesus is communicating that he holds only wrath for those who would masquerade as leaders within his kingdom. Those who would masquerade as followers of his kingdom, of the kingdom of heaven. He's never taken by it. He's never fooled. And the second of three parables makes that painfully obvious. And then there is the third of these parables in chapter 22 verses 1 through 14 we find the parable of the wedding feast this one probably is more familiar to some of you this one is familiar to me from studying even as a child the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son so here's now the last picture that jesus will use to expose his anger toward those who have only external allegiance to God, his father. This king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. We just have had a series of weddings here. Most of them have related to families, Warcantine and Torres. We've enjoyed a night of wedding feast, many of us. We've got to be at the celebration. And, and if you weren't at those, you've been at others. And so there's the day, and if you're involved in the wedding, your day is just longer. So you're there at noon for the pictures or whatever it is, and you stand there and you smile until your face hurts. But we have a day of wedding festivities. Perhaps if you're the bride or the mother of the bride, you've had months of wedding festivities. But in this time period, these people, when they heard wedding feasts, they're thinking at least a week long opportunity for celebration so the king of a region is inviting people to come for his son the prince who's having the wedding feast now i mean this is an invitation that you wanted to get you wanted to go to the post box and to see a three by five that said you're invited to the prince's wedding feast this was going to be the shindig of all shindigs that means feast in some other language. 
You wanted to be there. And yet Jesus uses this story to shock again and to make clear his point for those who are the recipients of this parable. He sent his servants to call those who were invited, verse 3 says, to the wedding feast, but they would not come. They wouldn't come. And again, in verse number 4, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, everything's ready. I prepared the dinner. I killed the animals. Everything's ready. Come to the feast. And then this is the shocking response to the second wave of people going out and inviting or gathering those who had been invited. They paid no attention and went off. One to his farm. I'm not going to go to the wedding feast. I'm going to go plow my field. Really? Really? That's going to be your response. Another to his business. I'm going to go do some paperwork. Got to get the files in order. And the rest, verse 6, seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Now at this point, this is just too much to bear. Three parables stacked on top of each other, all of them very pointed, all of them believable, but with shocking elements. The king has the prince's wedding feast planned. You got the invite. You have the card on your fridge. They come and say, it's time to go. Let's go celebrate for a week. No, I've got some accounting to do. Really? Okay. Right. King says, I can't believe it. They're not coming. I'll send out others. And they kill the people that he sends to gather those who've been invited. Notably, in verse number seven, and understandably, the king was angry, sent his troops, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And the response was, go out into the street, invite anybody that you can find, and tell them, the wedding feast is on me, just come. Come to the wedding feast. Maybe you remember this parable in in, in an older translation, if you have an old King James, in the highways and byways. Go out into the main areas of communication and, and, and transport and get people to this wedding feast. And we think that the story is over, but it's not. Verse number nine, go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into their roads and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. It wasn't based on their merit in the moment. So the wedding hall was filled with guests and these guests no doubt were excited to be there. They thought they were going to work today, but instead they're going to the prince's wedding feast. Verse number 11. But when the king came to look at the guests, he came to see what had happened. He saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now here we find kind of a shock in this story for us because of the cultural disconnect that we have with what's happening here with this wedding feast. But the king comes and sees a man who's not in the right attire. He doesn't fit. He's not where he should be. And the king comes to him assuming and providing an opportunity for some good explanation to be made. Why are you here without the right attire? If we go back to the story and we're trying to piece this all together, the king must have provided attire for people. Must have given something that that made those who were there noticeably fit for a wedding feast. This man's not. Which, Which identifies him quickly as someone who should be of concern to the king. And so the king goes to him and says, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? But notice the last Four words of verse number 12. And he was speechless. This man has no excuse. 
He had every opportunity to have the garment. He has chosen not to wear the garment. There's no explanation. He has come on his own terms. He's been granted an unforeseen invitation to the wedding feast of the prince. And in his arrogance, he's decided he'll come on his own terms with his own clothes. And the response is swift and harsh. Bind him hand and foot so he never gets back in and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So three parables. The first, the parable of the two sons. One says, I will and doesn't. The other one says, I won't and does. Which one obeyed? Which one did the will of the father? Second parable, the parable of the tenants. Master owns land, has tenants who are on it, sends his servants to get his rightful part of the crop. They kill his servants. He sends more. They kill them. He sends his son. They kill him. And thirdly, there's a wedding. But no one wants to come. And when the time of the wedding is finally here, those who have been invited first refuse to come. And when they're, re- they're re-invited a second time, they kill the messengers and go about their daily tasks. And so finally, those who were not first invited are invited and come. And they come on the king's terms to the feast for the prince. King Jesus holds only wrath for religious hypocrisy, and he loves only those who have come to genuine repentance and belief. These three parables are bracketed together within the temple moment, in the confrontation with the Pharisees, scribes, chief priests, the Sanhedrin. And there is a very real point to what Jesus has just communicated with three pictures painted with his words. Let's go back to chapter 21. And let's see first the point and the response in the first parable, the parable of the two sons. Verse number 31, the Sanhedrin, the hypocritical leaders of Israel respond, the first son did the will of the father. The one who said no, but then later changed his mind and obeyed, did the will of the father. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw them believe him, when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the first of of the punch of these parables. Which one obeyed? Well, it's the ones who initially are the rejectors of, of, of the command. It's the son who said, I won't do it, but then later said, I will do it. And he did it. And Jesus pounds home that the prostitutes and the tax collectors are the first son. Overt, outward rejectors of the Father's will, who later have come to repentance and belief. Jesus makes it obvious and clear to the hypocritical leaders that these ones, the tax collectors and prostitutes, will enter the kingdom of God before you ever do. For John came to you and you rejected him. And even when you saw these ones respond to him, 
you continue to reject him. This is willful rejection. And the hypocritical religious leaders of Israel are marked by this facade of religious, of religious allegiance to God. Of this love for God, love for his word, love for his people, love for his kingdom purposes and plans. Oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. And there's nothing behind the claim. They were shocked to hear prostitutes and tax collectors. We've lost the shock. One commentator said with all of the soft pornography on just the television screen, we've lost the repulsion to prostitutes. And we certainly have lost our repulsion to the tax collecting method of these ones who were Israelite people sold out to Rome who would rake off the top, skimming off what they wanted for themselves as they'd collected Rome's taxes for Caesar. But don't don't miss the reality that these people got it. The worst of humanity, the scum of society, Carson says, are going into the kingdom while you're not. Leader. Temple leader. Because Jesus has only wrath for those who live in religious hypocrisy and love only for those who have genuine repentance and belief. Second conclusion in the second parable, the parable of the tenants. The religious leaders have responded rightly in verse 41 as he asks them, what will the owner do to the tenants? Well, he'll kill them and he'll get new tenants. Now notice what Jesus says in verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scripture? There's his humiliating insult to those who kept the scriptures for the people. Psalm 118, the stone of the builders that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And given to the people producing its fruits, there will be no hypocrites in heaven. None. And the one who falls on this stone, that is the chief cornerstone, that is Jesus Christ, Ephesians 2 would tell us, will be broken to pieces. You stumble over him, you are ruined. He comes down on you, you're ruined. Notice verse 45. In regular Matthew understatement, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard this parable or heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they, that is the crowds, held him to be a prophet. They are aware that these are condemning parables about them. They're not unaware of what Jesus is doing. And finally, in verse number 14 of chapter 22, after all that's been done, the man who's come on the last invitation without the right attire sent out. This is the concluding explanation statement in verse number 14. For many are called or invited, but few are chosen. There are few who will experience the fullness of the kingdom, though many are offered its riches and pleasures. So the point is that Jesus only has kingdom intentions for those who have come genuinely in repentance and faith. This is no news to us. 
but it is startling to see it in the face of the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are a religious hypocrite. You are wearing armor that says, I'm a Christ follower, but it's laughable to those who can see what's behind the armor. The one who can perceive your heart knows you to be empty, dead, and without fruit. You are the second son who says, I do follow, I will obey, and you don't. You are the tenants who have been given the rights to the truth and you have abused them for your own ends. And you are the evil ones who have been invited to reject the king's offer of the feast and kill the ones who have come as messengers. You mirror the character of the religious leaders standing in front of Jesus. Let me help you with that common religious hypocritical theology. Here's a couple of key points of theology for those who would be religious hypocrites. The beginning matters more than the end. Whatever happened back then is what's really important. What's happening now and what will happen in the future is not that important. There's some past event, as in I was born into a certain family, as in I prayed a certain prayer, as in this date is in my Bible. Everything's back then, and God is really concerned about back then, not about right now and not about the perseverance to the end. But these parables flip that on its head, and it's the end that matters. It's how we finish. It's whether or not we persevere in faith, that is, believing what we cannot see. Bearing fruit for Christ because of His grace active in us. Secondly, religious hypocrites would believe that the standard for righteousness belongs to me. I determine who's righteous. And actually, I'm the standard. So all I have to do is be as good as me. And God will receive me based upon my merit as me. These parables reverse it. It is not your prerogative. It is not your right. It is not my right to determine righteousness. We do not get to pick the garments for the feast. God establishes the standard. We come on his terms and on his terms only. Or we face his wrath. Religious hypocrites love to consider the beginning and not talk about the end. They love to consider themselves as the standard for righteousness. They also often believe that the kingdom is a place for anyone who professes love in God or toward God. But these parables make it clear that Jesus is the king and he's a stumbling stone and a crushing rock. He would say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the father except through me. If there are any works on my part, it is worthless. If it is my job to earn my relationship to the Father, it is empty. And any righteousness apart from the righteousness of Jesus placed upon us solely by God's grace through faith is mere filthy rags, my Bible would say. So Jesus is the King. We come to the kingdom under the reign of the king. We bow our knee to the king. 
He alone can accomplish for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. He alone is the Messiah from heaven. He alone is the standard for righteousness and has kept the standard for righteousness. Finally, religious hypocrites often like to believe that the requirements for kingdom citizens are up for debate. But this is not the case. There is no wiggle room in the kingdom. We come on the king's terms alone, and these are the only terms provided. There is no contract negotiations at the throne. So it is not wise for us to say that what the scriptures teach about the way of salvation is up for debate as long as Jesus is mentioned and the kingdom is mentioned and the God of heaven is in some way professed as God. It is only by grace that is God's unmerited favor on sinners who believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear this is so that we never boast in our salvation. There will be no kingdom citizen who says, I'm here because I did it. All will say, worthy is the lamb because he did it. Therefore, I've received these blessings. Jesus has only wrath for those who live in religious hypocrisy who would claim to be His, who would claim to follow God, who would claim to be those who keep His Word, but bear no fruit, who reject the Word of the prophets, and who, if they were there, would have joined in the cry, Crucify the Son. Reminded of the song that we love to listen to and to sing, often around our communion reminders, as we take the bread and the cup, How deep the Father's love for us. And in that song, in one of the verses, I'm ashamed to hear my voice amongst those who are scoffing at the cross. Why? Because apart from God intervening in my life and breathing life into me, as Jesus said was necessary to Nicodemus, reborn new life on the inside unless the Word of God takes root through the preaching of the Word of God. And I'm given life and I see Christ for all that He is. And I turn away from my sin, I turn away from my own effort, and I place my confidence entirely upon Him. Apart from His work in doing that, I am the second son who says, oh yeah, I believe in God. And I was the second son. But there was nothing behind that profession. I'm the tenants who would readily reject and kill the messengers preceding the son and who killed the son. And certainly would be the guests who rejected the king's offer come to the table to celebrate the prince's wedding and killed those that were sent to communicate the king's intentions. Now, with the problem, the parables, and the point in front of our faces from this large portion of our New Testaments, let's consider how we must live because we've been here this morning. Right? Whenever we read our Bible, whether we're worshiping in private, whether we're worshiping in public, whether we're listening to someone teach it on the radio, in the car, whatever the case, we must consider how must I be affected because I've been in this text? How must I change because I've been here this morning? And we've been here this morning. And we've heard from 
God this morning. Let me, let me encourage you with a few thoughts for application. Examine yourself humbly. Number one, we must examine ourselves humbly. Who am I under the perfect examination of the king? Am I a slave of Christ, a servant of Christ? Am I a son of God through Christ and the adoption that I have in him? Am I a co-heir with Christ? Does he look at me and see the covering of his son because there's new life and there's faith in Christ? No more confidence in myself. No more confidence in my works. Nothing but Christ. Is that what is seen? Or is it some look-alike, some mask, some facade, some fake profession of being a follower, of being a worshiper of the one true God. So we must examine ourselves humbly. Peter commends us to make our calling and election sure. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are invited to the table, but few come. So we must examine ourselves to see if, in fact, we be in the faith. Is there fruit that can only come from the Holy Spirit who grants it to those who have life? Secondly, examine yourself humbly and exercise yourself daily. Examine yourself humbly. Secondly, exercise yourself daily. Look to the gospel daily. Preach the gospel daily. I'm a sinner. I will fail. I have a flesh and the presence of sin is still with me, though its power has been removed. But I have a Savior who's alive, who has died in my place, who has lived in my place. And I have a Father who loves and cares for me, who has granted me His Spirit in the absence of His Son. This good news is the basis of my obedience because I have set my mind on things above and my focus on Christ who is in heaven. I now put off what is old in me, and I put on what is new to me. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. So exercise daily. I've read others say that American Christianity is fat and lazy. And when the enemy shoots, we're too out of breath to do anything about it. Exercise. We're soldiers. It's a battle. There should be blood and mud on our uniforms. Because we've examined ourselves and seen the gospel realities that are ours if we're in Christ. We now exercise ourselves daily in the gospel. Bringing it to bear upon our lives. Allowing the spirit to drive it home and to produce effects and changes in us. So we might glorify him. Thirdly, examine yourself humbly. Exercise yourself daily. And thirdly, repeat steps one and two. Don't stop. Brothers and sisters, don't stop. Your endurance to the end is necessary. It is essential. It is the fruit of the Spirit's work in you. Because, Philippians 2.13 would say, because God is at work in me, I work out my salvation. Because He's behind it, working even my desires, I strive for holiness in the likeness of God. Why do we do these things? Because King Jesus holds only wrath for those who live in religious hypocrisy and he holds only love for those who repent and believe. Three parables. One primary point. There will be no hypocrites in heaven. Consider carefully, brothers and sisters. Visitors, consider 
carefully. Hypocrites, there is grace available if you will humble yourself before God and by faith embrace Jesus Christ and follow Him. Deny yourself, take up a cross of crucifixion, that is, you are dead to yourself, and follow Christ. The only hypocrites who are in heaven are those who have been redeemed by grace and their hypocrisy has been transferred for genuine spiritual life. There's hope in Christ. There's hope in Christ for us who are battling hypocrisy as true children fight and continue to exercise daily. Father, thank you for these verses, these parables, your instruction to us, Matthew's record the point that drives home these religious leaders had counterfeit allegiance to you, Father. They were losing what was their privilege to have by your kind intention. We are the recipients, Gentiles grafted in. We are the recipients of the gospel of grace and we are eternally grateful. Expose those who still now come and profess some allegiance to you or to your son who have no genuine life behind that profession. May their hypocrisy be exposed and may the worthiness of Christ be seen in all of its fullness. Give them eyes to see. Only you can. Give them ears to hear the good news. Only you can. Give them new hearts to believe. Only you can. And help us who are yours, who have been the recipients of new eyes, new ears, and new hearts to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, living in the gospel, putting down every instance of hypocrisy, confessing our sin before you, and preaching the gospel daily as we go through all that you have planned for us in this life. May we be active and effective this week as Grace Church of the Valley to extend your kingdom to all who need your good news. And may you use us for your kingdom purposes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.